Hi, and welcome to another episode of Desert Island Dishes with me, Margie Broadhead. Thank you so much for listening and for subscribing. It honestly makes me so happy to have so many of you on board each week. So if you are enjoying the episodes, do be sure to subscribe. My castaway this week is Dolly Alderton. I went round to her gorgeous flat on a rainy Monday morning and we just had a really lovely chin wag. Dolly is friendly, funny, and super successful, but also charmingly self-deprecating. We discuss a mutual love of all things Nigella, a love of butter, bread, and the joy of having a side of carbs when you're already having carbs. Dolly has a complicated relationship with shortbread, which we explore, as well as the idea of using food to make friends. We all do that, don't we? Anyway, enjoy. My castaway this week is Dolly Alderton. Dolly is an award-winning journalist who has written for the Sunday Times, the Sunday Times Style, GQ, The Telegraph, Marie Claire, Red Magazine. The list goes on and on. She writes and directs for TV, has made short movies, has written storylines for both Made in Chelsea and E4's Fresh Meat. Dolly was also the weekly dating columnist for the Sunday Times Style, and she has a weekly newsletter called The Dolly Mail, which is a huge hit and is growing by the day, probably by the hour. She also co-hosts a social commentary pop culture podcast called The High Low with Pandora Sykes, which has taken the world by storm as they've already had over half a million downloads. Dolly has been quoted as having said, in a world of no consequences, I would eat mac and cheese for every meal of the day, but there must be variation in life, light and shade, indulgence and restraint, red Leicester and nutritional yeast. A girl after my own heart. And so welcome, Dolly. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was trying to do my best, Kirsty. You got impression there. <laughs> that was a very, very good. You had the kind of warmth. Yeah. And the timbre, yeah. You don't quite ha- have her sort of dulcet tones or her lovely accent. It will have to do <laughs> for now. So when you think of being cast off to the desert island, yes. how does that make you feel? Um, obviously, I think about this all the time because for anyone listening who doesn't know, I'm kind of bizarrely obsessed with this island disc. Yeah. I think I listen to an episode every day and have done since 2012. There's such an amazing back catalogue. Yeah. Can literally yeah. do that. Yeah. And it's funny because sometimes you go through and you're like, oh, I've done all the big hitters of these years. I've done the Kathy Burks and the Tony Blairs. What do I do next? And then you find like a botanist. Yeah. by <laughs> Roy Plomley. And then it will be this kind of amazing hidden treasure. So I do think about it quite a lot. The, the idea of kind of being marooned on a desert island. I think I'm just, I think I'm quite feline in my, in my temperament in that I love being on my own. I'm a yeah. real loner. I've just moved in on my own. A loner in the best sense of the word. Yeah. I think a lot of writers are loners as well. It's got way worse as I've got older. It's actually something quite worried about. I've really noticed that I get very zapped when I'm around of energy, when I'm around too many people, which makes me sound so neurotic. No, not at all. But I find myself sort of sitting in loos at weddings. And so do you do that as yeah, well? You do. Reading, <laughs> reading articles. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even this year on my birthday was last week. And my, I t- I'm really sort of slammed with work at the moment. I'm really tired. And my two best friends were like, let's come round with like croissants and whatever. And I was like, oh, no, I've got like other, I've got some things I've got to do in the morning. They were like, oh, what things can we join you? And I was like, I want to be on my own. Yeah. 
I shouldn't have to say that, guys. Yeah, but they knew it. They were like, do you want to have lunch? And I was like, I kind of just want to have lunch on my own. It's my birthday. I kind of want to have a moment to reflect on the last year. Yeah. Have a glass of champagne and some salad oh and chips. Oh my God, you're adorable. So <laughs> read my little book. Basically what you're saying is you'd relish the opportunity I'd, to be sent to the desert But then I also had a lovely birthday drinks thing that evening and I was around people. So I think I'm one of those people that... I'm probably just quite selfish. I feed off my own energy, kind of almost like charge my battery to 100% where it's just like, you know, you feel centered and calm. And then at that point, I'm absolutely desperate to catch up with a friend. So I think I'd be great on the island until about cocktail hour. And then I'd yeah. be desperately <laughs> sad. I'd just be like, where are they? Yeah, but I have to say, I'm not sure how much I... Well, maybe that was a strong statement. I was going to say how much I trust people who can't be on their own. I know. And they actually are quite rare. True extroverts of this world... You know, people think extroverts means being a, a bit gobby, and it doesn't. It means someone who really thrives constantly off the company of other, that kind of ecosystem. Mm. And actually, those people are quite rare, I think. And they're normally the most popular people in offices. They thrive. Oh, offices, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> so we know how much you love Desert Island. Yes. What is it that you love about it so much? I'm just really fascinated with stories of being human, like, you know, whenever I'm at a party or I'm at a dinner or whatever, I'm never the person who wants to engage in like big political tussles or, you know, I'm not that interested in small talk. I'm always oh, the person. there goes your invitation to my party. <laughs> <laughs> no, Margie, I'm the person that's going to be cornering your friend being like, so what was your like parents' marriage like? And, you know, I'm kind of a frustrated therapist, I think. And I just... I'm so interested in the things, the context that make people who they are, the relationships that make them who they are, where they grew up, what they ate, you know, who their family are, who they lost their virginity to, who their great romances are, whether they have children. And that's just like, you really get into the meat of all that with Desert Islanders because the stuff that people ask in interviews and like, I'm a journalist, I do interviews, it's lazy, I do it as well, where it's like, what are your goals for the next 10 years? Yeah. What are your dream parts that you'd like to play? What a blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really say anything about someone. What is the heart of someone is, how often did you see your dad when he came home at night? Who put you to bed? Who brushed your teeth? What was your first memory? Whatever. And that's a really beautiful interviewing technique. And that's why they get these amazing exclusives mm. in Desert Islanders because they kind of take these, I've said this before in a piece, but they kind of take these hidden B roads into someone's story, kind of these secret passageways rather than the kind of tried and tested method of the motorway route of questioning. Someone. Yeah. It just like unearths all this beautiful anecdotal treasure and you get a really full picture of someone. And, and I, I think it's really comforting that however successful someone's been, and they obviously yeah. all are very successful in their given field, hasn't been a straight line. And it's Never. really interesting to hear about maybe things that didn't work out. Yeah. And just sort of, yeah, that life isn't always smooth like it looks on the outside. Yeah, and it's really reassuring because it is just like, Kirsty Young, when I interviewed her about it, said it's like, a stock cube of human experience doing that job where she kind of interviews everyone because she kind of... She has a way with oh, words. the way with but... words, that woman. <laughs> but it means that you kind of get an insight into all these different experiences of different lives. Something that I have found, as you said, very, very cheering and very soothing is listening to Dustin Hoffman and him saying, you know, Dustin Hoffman, him saying, after every job I do, 
I go home knowing that's the last job I'm ever going to do. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I'm sure you and I know that, you know, as freelancers, whatever, and to feel like Dustin Hoffman never shakes that feeling. Yeah. The one that I found so comforting was Emma Thompson talking about her huge flop. Yeah, I loved her being so honest. Yeah, she was so honest. Yeah. And... There's no need to not be honest. Like yeah. She's, you know, yeah. she's everything she is. But exactly. That seems like a good moment to pause and ask you about your first Desert Island dish of the day. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. There are so many for this. This is the best question because my mum is a really amazing cook. She's Canadian, part Italian. Oh, amazing. She's, she's just a really, really fat cook. And she was kind of teaching me how to cook from the age of about four or five onwards. And I think the thing that I first remember holding it was Delia Smith's shortbread that my mum made, told me to make a huge batch of for my class at Christmas. And I think it really instilled in me this idea that the way you gain love <laughs> is, by, is by feeding people and making them things. So I kind of blame men. And yeah, and I kind of blame my, my mother and Delia's shortbread for that moment because it's quite unhealthy, I think, that attitude. And I remember when I first started doing work. Is that not space, the right way to make friends? Apparently there's a more authentic, less manipulative way really? of making people love you, Margie. I'm yet to find out. Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really do. I, that's like... My big, even in seduction as well, I'm like, pull out the big guns, you know, do the fillet steak, whatever. But yeah, I remember when I first went to do work experience placements after I graduated. Oh my God, did you make the shortbread? Yeah, <laughs> every single placement I did over in Tupperware's was shortbread. Oh my God, people Just, must have loved that. No, they didn't, they didn't. And I didn't get a job for like nine months. Are so you it didn't work. No, so I have this sort of. It got complicated in my relationship with the shortbread because it failed me <laughs> at the most crucial moment. But it's the most delicious shortbread. It's like dusted with sugar and oh. really buttery and it's just delicious. So. so good. I think when I went to university, my mum's main advice was to take a cake or something and that I could sort of yeah. go around and try and make friends. And, and did you do that? <laughs> probably. I can't remember. No, I remember thinking like, oh, I don't know, age 19, if I can turn up to uni with a cake and make people like me. But I mean, it's always <laughs> worth trying. So I read a piece of yours where you said that cookery shows were a large part of your childhood and so much so that you feel they are a salve for the soul. Mm. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, my mum always had them on, when, especially when she was cooking kind of like the radio. And I just loved watching them with my mum. And there are certain voices, so Nigella Bites, you know, watching Nigella Bites every week in the 90s. Was it the 90s or it might be in the early noughties? I can't remember. I think it was the 90s. Watching that every week and, and what you buy what you buy into with that, which was her beautiful big house in Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. <laughs> Mimi and Bruno, these beautiful, delicious little children. That lemon linguine. Oh, I love like that lemon linguine. cheese cream. And it's so eggs. good, that lemon linguine. It's <laughs> so just lemon good. juice. Yeah. It's so delicious. That's when I generally uh, such it's a... not just lemon juice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shit It's all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. That's when Nigella's so good as well. She trained as an Italian in Italy to, to be a cook. That's where she liked to cook. Oh, did in. she? I didn't know that. Yeah, and that's why her children have Italian names. When you go back and read those initial recipes that really made Nigella who she is, you do see the, the Italian cook there because it's all... Like hardly anything had more than like five ingredients. No, that's true. And it was all about, you know, getting the best ingredients and kind of things being really simple and, and really kind of not trying to distract lemon linguine. You just have lemon, palms, you know, you don't need meat, you don't need yeah. veg. Anyway, yeah, so I kind of, it was just a thing that my mum and I used to watch together and 
I just found it very soothing. I love, I'm incredibly nosy as most journalists are. So I find it, I love the kind of keyhole into someone's life. Like the barefoot Contessa. I love I mean, when she like obsessed. talks about Jeffrey and yeah, homemade like house. <laughs> my favourite observation about Jeffrey the barefoot. Is I know. so cute. Jeffrey and Ina are the dream. Oh my God, they actually are. And they're rock solid. They are. Two. I know. I think it's because they don't have children. I have wondered that. I do think that might be it. They seem I'm so happy. They do seem very happy and very close and very connected. I also think, I mean, I really have analysed yeah. them, as you can tell. <laughs> I also think there's something in the fact that She's just like a very excitable, vivacious, like happy little partridge of a woman. Yeah, she is. And she's like very excited to be like, she's got a real joie de vivre. And I think he seems like he's like that as well. And I always remember this one episode episode where it was their wedding anniversary. And she was like so excited about it. She was making a dinner for him. And one of her real traits is she loves her guests to be surprised. Have you noticed that? Yeah. yeah. She's like, they're going to be so surprised. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to make a cheesecake, <laughs> but instead of blueberry, I'm going to do rhubarb. There's going to be so <laughs> surprised. <laughs> and she's like, are you surprised? When she's presenting the food. And I remember for Jeffrey, she's like, I'm going to do a replica of our wedding cake. He's oh going to God, be so surprised. It's <laughs> just the two of them in their Hamptons house having like this small dinner à deux and with also, a 40 cake. And also, he's so small he doesn't look like he eats that no, much no but but yeah you can never she would never be in a bad mood she would never no, snap no. at jeffrey would no she? definitely not no right so i know that your mum taught you the classics yes. white sauce victoria sponge rose chicken you've really done your research you really are as good as christy <laughs> well, i'm trying i'm trying golly <laughs> but whilst you did kind of answer this in your first as island dish yeah. of the day it's time to talk about your second and that's the dish that you first learned to cook. And I guess that might be on your own or as opposed to the shortbread. I think yeah, it would probably be, and also this is conflated with the dish that reminds me of my childhood. I think it would probably be roast chicken. I really hated being a kid. I hated it. I hated being a teenager. I hated being at school. Um, it was just a really... I just couldn't wait for it to be over. Oh my God, this is like interviewing myself. Yeah. Do you know what's so funny? I was going to save this story for while we were recording oh. and you can take it out if you want to. So what are you going to say? Marty and I were at school together, but we weren't friends. We weren't you the year above me. Yeah. We weren't like not friends. We just yes. didn't know each other. Yeah, exactly. I said that like there was an issue. No, we just didn't know each other. But I always sort of hated you, Margie. Oh my God. Because... I was mad about this boy. Oh, no. Who, we were in West Side Story together. You're going to die over this. <laughs> so we were in West Side Story this together. This is being cut out. <laughs> <laughs> and he was my dancing partner. And he had gone out with you. Who was he? He was your ex-boyfriend. And I desperately wanted him to, to like me and every week we'd do these like dancing rehearsals and I'd like put on my perfume and get really excited <laughs> and every week he would sit talking about how much he loved you oh my god I do not believe that for a second so and oh this was before god. I was like a baby feminist so this was before I understood the concept of like sisterhood and yeah shine so I was just yeah shine <laughs> so I was just like I hate that unbelievably cool beautiful blonde margie so and so it's so funny to me that you hated it because i was like that that's the girl i want to be she's got everything oh i want God, it's so fun- funny yeah so funny nothing's ever as it seems i know from the outside no guy could not wait for school to be over yeah and i think when going back to the food is that 
And my mum really knew that. And she didn't ever try to tell me like, this is an amazing time. Like, I mean, that is the you know, work when you're not having a good time to be told this is the best time of your life. Yeah. It's like, well, <laughs> that is just not what you want No, to hear, I think it's, it? it's really criminal to say that to, to young people having a good time because Truly, I mean, I mean, I didn't have, I was very privileged. I didn't have any huge trauma, but emotionally yeah. it was a very difficult time for me. And I don't really remember a lot of my teenage life because my life didn't begin until I left school. And I think my mum was always really good with me about that. And she knew how much I hated it. And that it meant that Sunday night was always a, a really troubled yeah. time. Do you still get that house. feeling now? Well, no, that's why I think it was really important for me that I ended up working for myself because... I just couldn't ever have that feeling again of like, I don't want Monday morning to come. And I never have that feeling now. That's so um, good. But my mum used to make roast chicken every Sunday night. So it would kind of be like something to soften that blow. And she would, and she taught me how to do it when I was a teenager. So she'd do it with kind of olive oil and rosemary and lemon and garlic and all the classics. And Yum. then sometimes she'd do it with roast sweet potato and peas. And sometimes she would do this unbelievably delicious thing, which is an old Nigella recipe, where she'd roast the chicken, then pull it apart, and then pour all the cooking liquor with torn up, the torn up warm chicken and rosemary and some butter and some peas mm. with a kind of with this kind of chickeny gravy into tagliatelle. Oh my goodness! I know, and I, I gave, think I just dribbled. It's so delicious, <laughs> and I gave up meat when I was twenty. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. you're a vegetarian. When I was twenty four, I gave up meat, and I but I still sometimes dream on Sunday nights, like kind of muscle memory. I still think of that <laughs> delicious. I think roast chicken is one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you've worn many different hats throughout your career, and it just seems to be going from strength to strength. But you, you can come round every Monday, <laughs> you? said publicly that when you first got your dating column with the Sunday Times, you were crippled with self-doubt over it, and you didn't enjoy it because you were worried you weren't worthy of it. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I'm just a classic imposter syndrome woman, but I think most women are. And what's so strange is, you know, I constantly... It's so ingrained in us, this idea that women aren't good enough, that not to get above one station, not to try and do too many things, not to be greedy. And it's so weird. I always kind of, in conversation, I'm like, I just want women to really own their success. And I just want women to really kind of feel like they're, they've worked hard and they're worth it. And then what's so confronting for me is occasionally I do meet those women and my first thought is, gosh, she's a bit full of herself. Big head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And isn't that bad? Because yeah. it really shows how... You can't win. No, how's also systemically and societally that has been ingrained in me that a woman who's not baking shortbread for everyone to make her like her, you know, a woman who's not making a joke about how shit she is, a woman who's not something I've noticed I do is when I'm talking about my upcoming book is I call it my stupid book. What? Which I'm saying all the time to people, I'm like, oh, that's what my stupid book is. Out. My silly little book. It's, it's not silly. worth mentioning. Yeah, my big long tweet. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think that... It's something that I need to really get over because I have yet to really enjoy any semblance of success I've had in my life, oh, really. That's so interesting because you are someone without meaning to sort of blow smoke up you, but you, you are successful and you are doing all of these amazing things. And I think it's really interesting to speak to people when they're in the middle of that and mm. see if that is how it feels from the inside. And I, for women, yeah, particularly, I don't yeah. think it ever is, is it? No, it's, I've always found it really stressful in small moments. Like I've just moved into this flat that, you know, was difficult to get on my own. And, you know, it's tough renting in London on your own. And 
I remember in the first couple of days, I was here, kind of touched the walls and walked around. And I was like, God, you really did this. So be, you know, this, have a moment of gratitude and whatever. And then the first thing my head says is, well, that could go away any minute. So don't get too <laughs> smug, you know. So, so stressful. <laughs> it's so stressful. Yeah. And I really hope at one point I'll relax into it. You know, I don't want to be someone toasting themselves constantly. No. But I would love to be someone who, because I didn't get to enjoy that dating column at all, really. And by the time I'd relaxed into it, it was over. So I really hope that I don't have that with everything that I do in life, because that also stunts your ability to do the job. I think if you're constantly thinking, why did they choose me? What do people think of me? But I think it is something that takes practice. Yeah. And like I heard someone say the other day, it's a bit like a muscle. And if you don't use muscles, then they don't work as well. So it sort of needs constant Definitely. use and practice. Yes. So Dolly, that's a good moment to pause and ask about your third Des Island dish of the day. And that is the best dish you've ever eaten. Such a tough question. No. Can I ask you what your one is? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one day we'll have to reverse this and I'll come in as the guest dish. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, deal. Because I am desperate to know all yours. <laughs> I think it's probably, so when I was growing up, my parents are real Francophiles and they used to pack my brother and I off in in the back of the car with Game Boys, <laughs> put on Frank's and Oh my goodness, CDs. the day of the Game Boy. I know, I loved it. So I have some lovely memories now of that time with my family that was really precious and we just have these great, we have these kind of great gastronomic journeys around there. Like I remember we kind of stayed in this mad old farmhouse once and there was a woman who, the woman, it was like very, you were in the home uh, when you were staying there. And the woman who kind of ran this B&B, this beautiful like apricot pot that I always think about. Oh, but the one goodness. that really stands out was when I was staying in Provence in this um, town called Gord, which is so beautiful. And it's kind of one of those places that really got under my skin. I was, saw it when I was about 13 when we visited it. And I kind of used to dream about it when I went back to London and even now on kind of very low days I often still will google this town and I often think about just going back having a little trip there on my own because I remember it being this kind of unbelievably dreamy place and there was this small town square with a really kind of rustic Provencal restaurant and there was this soup that all of my family ate we had it was like a bean and kind of slow cooked pork Mm. kind of thick with kind of white, white wine in the salt. I can't, my mouth's watering. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that classic French kind of stew soup. Yeah, big crusty bread. Big crusty bread. And then these kind of gruyere croutons on top. And it was so oh delicious. And God. I think it must have cost my parents like five quid a, a bowl. Yeah. And my brother also accidentally, he was about 12, got drunk for the first time that <laughs> night because they kept topping up his wine. So it also has great memories for me because he woke everyone up we were staying in this like annex and you woke everyone up by doing a piss in the wardrobe in oh, the middle of the night oh thinking my it God. was a loop no. um, yeah so I've got lovely memories of that but but food I think that's the lovely thing about asking these questions is that it obviously that soup sounds delicious but, but it's it also that yeah, totally, experience totally it? when I and like if that's so you still think food. about that tart yeah like, it's so strange yeah. that all these years later you you do like I kind of yeah. remember events in my life through what I ate I'm exactly the same and actually I've just written my first book and something weird that happened in it is that it's a memoir as I was as I was reading back through it I was like oh my god I mentioned food in every single moment of my life it was literally like this was the day I moved into my first flat this is what we ate on the floor yeah this was the day my friend died this is what 
I cooked for everyone when we went back to my flat. This is what, and it was this real recurring thing. And then my agent said to me, I think you should put recipes in the book. So I have. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so there are about that, five recipes. Is that an exclusive? Or have you already I don't I think that. the booksellers thing might have had it. I mean, no one will give a share other than you, Margie. Of course they will. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same because I just, and I think a lot of people feel like that. And the recipes are sort of, you know, crap, silly recipe. You know, they're not. Dolly, I'm doing it. Yeah, again. you are. But they're like not gonna let you. Or, or kind of nothing crap about them. Yeah, I'm very excited. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you about your book, but I wondered what made you want to be a writer in the first place. That's such an interesting question. I don't think I've ever thought about that because you come across as someone who is a very natural storyteller, and I wondered mm-hmm. how that evolved into then deciding that that was what you were going to do for. I think I've just, I've always loved telling stories when I was little, kind of all, I had diaries from the age of like five and kind of when I, yeah, yeah. And it's just a really natural thing for me. I think people experience life in, in different ways. And the way that I make sense of everything has always been to tell it a second time and it's cathartic and I enjoy it and I like gaining you know I like making people laugh yeah. I like gaining people's affection yeah. <laughs> as all people who try and make people laugh do but I also it just helps me make sense of being here it helps me join up the dots and it's something that I've always done like I went on Emma Gannon's podcast and she, I was really embarrassed to admit but loads of people got in touch after and told me the same that when I was younger, if I had, I was like, as we've established, very uncool teenager <laughs> who was kind of big and lumbering and, and moody and angry and, and didn't ever have great loves in their life. But whenever and I had these small moments of things happening with boys, whatever, I would write them down like stories afterwards. I would go home or I would go on a date and I would sit on the bus home with my iPhone notes or in my diary writing down everything they said and everything that happened. So it's just... It's just, it's just how, it's just how you are. Yeah, it's just how experience. I'm, I'm jealous. Like I wish I wrote those kind of things down because I don't know. Like I have such bad memory. It's kind of like yeah, you know, like years of my life just never happened. Yeah, it is really hard, especially someone for. I live so much of my head in a sort of realm of fantasy. I'm such a dreamer that I often don't remember what was happening in the reality. Yeah. You know, I remember what I felt internally during times. I'm like, what was I actually doing every day? Yeah. And actually, I think it was David Sedaris who said, when you're writing, I've just started writing a diary again, just to try and exercise a part of me that wants to write just for me, because I think I've become so thirsty for clicks and tweets and, you know, approval, which is natural. You know, I don't love it about myself, but it is something. And it's your job. Yeah. um, But I really want to just remember the art of just having a relationship with a story that's just me and the story for no one else. Yeah. So I started writing a diary again and something David Sedaris said is the, the bits that we all really want to read um, when you look back isn't, isn't really the huge stuff about what you're feeling. It's more about what you ate that day or conversation you had on the phone with your mum or a dress that you bought and returned or whatever. Yeah, that's really you, interesting. You know, because that that kind of anchors you back in those moments. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I've just always loved, it's just always come very naturally to me telling stories. And then I always wanted to be at school. I really harboured dreams of being a playwright. Okay. 
was a very serious teenager, <laughs> I actually wrote a play that they put on at the school we were at. Oh my God, that's called, amazing. Um, if Books Could Kill, which was about love, dissertation love fraud, title. dissertation fraud at Warwick University. <laughs> so I always kind of harbored those, it's <laughs> terrible. I always harbored those dreams. And then I, I also I did one called the Cat Satire on the Mat. Oh my goodness. Can you see why I was like not the coolest customer in town when I was at school? No, I mean, I can't believe we weren't <laughs> friends. Dolly, this seems like a good moment to ask you the most important question of the day. That's yes. your fourth desert island dish and that's your favourite sandwich. God, I love sandwiches. And I love that you asked this because a journalist called Sophie Wilkinson, very early on in her career, we realised that the best, most, most kind of insightful answer you can get off a celebrity yeah is she asks in every single celebrity interview what her favorite sound oh my god does she? i mean it's a good question it's a very good question. you can tell a lot about a person so choose oh, your I answer very no. <laughs> um, i think it would be so i grew up in the north london suburbs which was like <laughs> i was the only non-jewish person in samor which was great because i it i mean it made me harbor this thing that i just always longed to be jewish <laughs> because esther esther Corinne actually said the same. She was like, she was the only kind of non-Jewish girl at her North London school. But when it was Rosh Hashanah or when it was those days, it was literally like everyone just put DVDs on because there'd only be 10 girls in the school. <laughs> anyway, so it meant that I grew up around a lot of Jewish um, food and a lot of Jewish delis. And I just love Jewish food, Jewish yeah. kind of soul food. And something that I would eat a lot, there was a deli in Stanwell that I used to kind of ride my bike to constantly to have an egg and onion bagel. Ooh, what kind? Like um, egg mayonnaise? Yeah, so it's like, it's hard-boiled eggs and then kind of mixed with mayonnaise, some do a tiny bit of mustard and then chopped spring onions with loads of salt and pepper mm. and sometimes some dill. And then it's just loaded into these like unbelievably pillowy, soft, sweet, delicious bagels. Yes. And then maybe with a potato lacta on the side, which Ooh. is basically like a delicious hash brown with onions. I love... The choice of having a sandwich and then another car, a car on the yeah. side. Yeah. I love <laughs> no, I like it. You've described Nora Ephron as your writing heroine. Yeah. And I was going to ask what it is about her that you love so much. But then I found this extract. Ephron was not religious. You can never have too much butter. That is my belief. If I have a religion, that is it. She quipped in an interview. So need we say more? <laughs> yeah, but exactly. If you could emulate one woman's career, would it be hers? Definitely. She straddles the between the kind of she was a great journalist she was a really serious journalist in a way that I will never be she was a kind of hard-hitting news journalist she loved journalism she loved the newsroom and she also was this great creative magician of narrative she kind of created these beautiful worlds she created characters and relationships that people feel like like invested in yeah you know I'm one of those people when you think about Sally Albright or Harry Burns yeah in When Harry Met Sally yeah you know they're I would be offended if someone slacked them off. I would be upset yeah, if someone... characters. Yeah, important. exactly. If someone talked about their relationship in a damning way, it would upset me. <laughs> and I think a lot of people feel that about her work and the worlds that she's created. And that's the form of magic. And I think... And to do it once would be amazing. But she yeah. kind of did it time and time again. Yeah, she just understood men and women and she understood love and she... She was truthful. She understood human frailty and foibles and her own flaws and she was the first person to point them out in a way that wasn't defensive but was 
self-aware and warm and stylish and I just yeah <laughs> um we may have talked about Nigella but I wondered who are your other foodie heroes probably Ruth Rogers and Rose Gray yeah at the River Cafe because I love what they did for Italian food in this country yeah they gave us an understanding of Italian food I love their obsession with quality of ingredients you know I love that the, these two best friends would go on pilgrimages where they'd go to you know vineyard after vineyard after vineyard to like find one olive oil that was yeah peppery enough or whatever I love that kind of obsession some people find that kind of obsession nauseating I'm not one of those people yeah. <laughs> I could talk about food all day I could go on those long journeys in fact Nora Ephron wrote an essay about how she became completely obsessed with this cabbage strudel mm. that was in this Hungarian bakery, I think on the Upper West Side. And then the, the bakery closed down. And it was like this very long journey in her life where she obsessively had to find the cabbage strudel again. <laughs> and I love people yeah. like that. And me and my friends are really like that. So, yeah, I love that that's the kind of ethos of the River Cafe. And I also just love the River Cafe. Yeah. So they're definitely food heroes of mine. That's a great answer. Uh, Dolly, the fifth Desert Island dish of the day is the dish that you eat the most often. Oh, well, this links back really nicely to the River Cafe, actually, because... (laughs) Oh, um, my goodness, it's like we planned. I know. We didn't. So one of my best friends is a girl called Sarah, and I met her when I was 22, and I had a bad period of my life with eating where I just stopped eating when I, after a kind of very bad breakup. And I'd never had that before. And it was a, a very difficult time. And when I was kind of coming out of it, I happened to meet this girl called Sarah and I was kind of completely on the road to recovery. And Sarah was the first woman I'd ever met who was as obsessed with food as I was in terms of not just the eating of it, the sourcing of ingredients, the tracking down a certain restaurant, you know, the talking about, how, you know, the tips and the whatever. And I really kind of look at her and our relationship as something that really helped me just completely fall back in love with food. And That's so great. Yeah. And she and I, a lot of our relationship has been based around cooking together. She's the only person I can cook with. I can't cook with anyone else other than Sarah. Cooking together, discovering new cities going to, by, you know, tracking down bakeries or restaurants or where we're going to go eat first or whatever. So it's just a really special bond that we have. And she, like me, is obsessed with tomatoes. Mm. And she is, she's also the best cook other than my mum. I know I always say that my favourite restaurant in London was like Sarah's dining room table. And she loves tomatoes like me. And she told me about how to make the best tomato salad of all time. Tell us. Which I think I eat every single day. So it's like a lovely mixture of tomatoes, like heritage, plum, babies. And then you cut them up. And then you put them in a colander over the sink, covered in salt Mm -hmm. for about four hours. Like a scary amount of salt that you keep quite freaking out. Yes, I'm sure you you know this tip very well. (laughs) Yeah, I love that I'm telling the chef this too. (laughs) And then you keep kind of going back to the the colander and keep tossing them kind of once an hour so that all the kind of salt drips off. And basically it just, it draws out all the water from the tomatoes and makes them unbelievably tasty and sweet and delicious. And then she puts really good olive oil, really good olive oil, salt and pepper, red pepper chili flakes and oregano. That sounds so I think I have that nearly every day. Sometimes I just have that with some toast. Mm, That sounds really good. (laughs) Um, Please, can we talk about quiche? Oh, yes. Yeah. Because I feel like quiche gets a bad rap. And I agree. I think you agree too. Yeah. It's delicious. 
Keisha's so good. And I actually had friends around for dinner a couple of months ago. And Keisha's so good because you can make it ahead. Yeah. I mean, Keisha is just a tart with a less fancy name. And with like more delicious filling. Yeah, way more delicious. Um, But I did it before, like I kind of made it that morning, went out and did have meetings, whatever, and then made to go with it, carb on carb, potato salad, which I love, and tomato salad. And I was quite nervous because the girls that were coming around say, oh, they get, is this going to be a bit too barbie? Yeah, a bit too sort of um, much. And all of them came in and they were so delighted to see quiche. I've never seen women more happy to see quiche. <laughs> it's like they've forgotten quiche even exists. Yeah, but I think people do. But this is but this is the thing I think people get wrong with dinner parties as well. Like people are so happy to see like homey, wholesome, yeah. abundant food on yeah. a table. People get obsessed with the new and yeah. something exciting. But quiche... Quiche is delicious. Can't go wrong. Yeah. And I love, I find that whole process of it really soothing. I love making the pastry. I love a good quiche spring form <laughs> tin. What's your favourite quiche filling? I mean, controversial, but I love a Lorraine. Lorraine's Lorraine. delicious. Yeah. Do you know Can't who does wrong. a good Lorraine? Ooh. Rachel Koo. She's got oh, a great she? recipe for Lorraine, yeah. <laughs> My mum made a really good one the other day that was just like mainly chives. Oh, and I, I saw it and I was like, <laughs> it's quite chivey. It was the best thing I've ever tasted. Yeah. So good. Okay, moving on to your sixth desert island dish of the day is your go-to dinner party dish. As I it said, can't be a quiche. Can't be a quiche. <laughs> As I said, I think it's um I've tried to do really fiddly stuff before. And sometimes it really works, sometimes it's really impressive. But often I think people are just really relieved when they see a huge bowl of risotto or yeah. pasta or and it also means as well, there's something that signifies that no one has to be standing on ceremony. Yeah. When you see that there's a, a huge pile of potato salad or whatever. I think I know the answer to this, but do you like throwing dinner parties? Yeah, I love it. It's like <laughs> the happiest, happiest thing is throwing dinner parties. It's, I think... Are you a feeder? Yeah, huge feeder. My friend's actually very kindly for my 29th got me a Le Creuset. <gasps> Oh, yeah, I was so, so happy. Crazy. And I said to them, look, this is just, think of this as a promise, an emblem of all the dinners I'm going to cook for you. Yeah, actually, um, that was quite a self-serving yeah, cousin exactly. on their part. <laughs> um, so I think it would be something like, I mean, I would love to say risotto, but the problem with risotto is you're just in the kitchen for an hour feeding it with wine. Yeah. And I don't like being away from the fun. So I think probably like, if I'm going fancy, probably like a seafood stew or like a Provencal, like a kind of, Beast with just a shit ton of bread. Yeah. <laughs> but bread is always the answer. And <laughs> um, now, Dolly, I couldn't let you go without asking what your one music choice would be that you're going to save for the desert. Island. Oh my God. <laughs> just one, which I know is the hardest part of Desert Island Disc anyway. But I think Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones, because I think when I hear Rolling Stones, one of my favorite bands. And I think when I hear Keith Richards do that riff at the beginning, I listen to it a lot when I'm just kind of wandering around, pottering around, and I need a bit of a lift because for some reason, the notes of that riff or the way he plays it just reminds me of how exciting it is to be alive. And I think I'd need to be reminded that. I love that Island. you sort of paused as though you haven't thought of that before, <laughs> but you had that answer ready and waiting. <laughs> Moving on to the last, the seventh Desert Island dish of the day. And that is the last dish you would eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. 
I love that you're asking me this because my friends get really annoyed with me because this is my thing that I ask everyone obsessively. Me too. (laughs) And I really torture myself over it. And I'm pretty stringent with the rules as well because I don't like these clowns who are like a korma with a side of pizza. (laughs) It's like, no. You have to pick one. That's how it works. Am I allowed to do a starter? God, of course. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So, um, like, no judgment. I do think it's weird when people don't have the whole. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're freaks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, so, it would be a mixture of Fin de Claire and Jersey rock oysters. Oh, yes. With Tabasco, shallot vinegar, and lemon, really on ice, obviously, with a bottle of vintage champagne to myself. <laughs> and then I would have my favorite food in the world, which is spaghetti vongolet. Yes. But I think I'd do it Bianco because more and more, when I, more and more when I have <laughs> spaghetti vongolet with tomatoes, I think they're getting in the way. Yeah, no, it's true. They can, they can ruin the whole thing. So I think I'd do it <laughs> Bianco. I'd have it just with the white wine and the, and um, the kind of buttery sauce. Would you have a pudding? I'm not really like a pudding person, but I think I would have maybe crepe Suzette. Oh, yes. Great mm. last meal. Yeah. Can I join you for it? Of course you can, but you can't drink my champagne. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Dolly, you're allowed one luxury item. What are you going to take with you? I'm going to make like Jarvis Cocker and take a big bed. Oh, <laughs> I love that. As he said, everything is easy when you've had a good night's sleep. Oh, <laughs> that's a great thing. Dolly Alderton, thank you very much for letting us hear your Desert Island dishes. Next stop, Desert Island Dish. You darling. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I know I'm no Kirsty Young and that Desert Island Dishes has a long way to go before we reach the starry heights of Desert Island Dishes, but that was really fun and I hope you enjoyed listening. Come and find me on Instagram at madebymargie and search for the other episodes of the podcast at the desertislanddishespodcast.com. Tune in next week to hear another exciting episode of Desert Island Dishes.